All right. Let it begin. <laughs> okay, so let me bring my counter back down to one. This is the first question for today's Q&A, and it comes in uh, anonymously, but the question is this. My father believes that there are people who we, we do not, as in should not, pray for. He backs it up with John 17, 9. I always appreciate people using a verse to back up things like that. Uh, saying that it may be a sin to pray for people who we shouldn't pray for, I would love to hear your thoughts. So let's start by just looking at John 17, 9, because there's actually so much scripture we could bring up on this topic. It isn't just a black and white issue, um, but you'll see. Okay, so John 17, 9. Now, now, this is in the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is like, that's what we often call it today, right? This is Jesus's prayer just before his crucifixion in the Gospel of John. He's lifting up, uh, you know, in prayer, several different issues, uh, his own issue, with the Father, like, Father, glorify me. Then he prays for the disciples. Then he prays for the people who will follow after. So he prays in different sections for different groups. Well, in one of those sections, John 17, 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So let's just analyze this in the context, because we're bringing a context to this that maybe wasn't there when Jesus said it, but in the context of the question, hey, um, is it wrong to pray for certain people? And the only way I can see using John 17, 9 to say it's wrong to pray for certain people is if you use it to say it's wrong to pray for the whole world or anyone in the world. So when Jesus here says, I'm praying for them, his disciples, he's not praying for the world. If you take this as a command, hey, everyone, I want you to pray for disciples. I do not want you to pray for the world. Then it's a very extreme command. It's not just certain people. You can't just pick people with certain sins in their life. You can't pick people who have just really hard hearts. You have to just pick everybody who's not Christian and say, I don't, I, I will not pray for any of them, any of those people who are not Christians. No prayer for them. So once you realize like the stakes, the stakes are very high. This is a really strong claim. Um, so for your father who uses this, who I encourage you to be very respectful to him as you very much disagree with him on this verse, um, and rightly so. I would, I would, I would say, hey, yeah, he's absolutely using this verse wrong. Um, Jesus just says who he's praying for in that moment of the prayer. He doesn't say, I never pray for the world. I will. I always pray for the disciples. I never pray. For, he doesn't say that at all. He prays for himself. Then he prays in verse nine. He starts praying for the disciples, or at least mentions that. Then in verse twenty, he changes the prayer again, um, the focus of the prayer, and he's not only asking for the disciples, but also for those who will believe. In him afterwards, which includes you and me. And so Je Jesus is praying in different sections for different groups. But in no way is this verse 9 supposed to be exclusive, that it's only Jesus only prays and tells us to only pray for believers. Um, so at Luke 23, 34, we have an example of Jesus praying for the world. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is Jesus when he's being crucified. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, some debate on whether that passage is, that verse is uh, authentic or not, I think probably, yeah. But um, the another verse we could go to, if, if that's an issue that you're aware of and, and you want to avoid that discussion for, because it can be kind of a distraction at the moment, is Matthew 5.44, where Jesus says, I, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus not only encourages praying for the world in general, but praying specifically for the people in the world that are so anti-gospel that they're actually persecuting you 
you Christians. That's pretty pretty strong evidence. Now here he's, he's not just praying. In John 17, 9, he prays for a certain group, not another group, right? Here it's more than that. He's actually telling us how to pray and who to pray for. So we're told to pray for the world. But I would offer some caveats. When I say pray for the world, there should be some... Um, some limiting to this. And this, this is because we know in first Timothy, it says that God desires that, that all men would be saved. So we should pray for their salvation. He commands all men to repent. So we should pray for their repentance. These are things we know God wants for the world. But when it comes to praying for their prosperity, for them, their financial and physical health and prosperity, there can be limits to this. I say can be limits. I hope people hear me. This is nuanced. Can be limits just means there is no one blanket I lay over everyone in the world. And I say, here's my exact prayer requests, limits, and you know things I do and don't do. But at least Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, shows us there can be some limits. So an example of this is uh, Jeremiah 11.14. In Jeremiah 11.14, Jeremiah, um, let's see, he's, he's you know, being told by God, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in their time of trouble. This is this is one of the biggest condemnations in the scripture here is God's like, hey, I'm not going to listen to you when you call out in your time of trouble. Um, now, this can be taken out of context, but we know Jesus already wants us to pray for enemies. We know God desires even the repentance of these people that he's telling Jeremiah not to pray for. So how do we interpret, how do we understand this accurately? I think that we understand this. There's a specific prayer that Jeremiah is, is being told not to offer, and that is an intercessory prayer for those people to not suffer God's judgment. You see, prayer for their repentance is okay, but prayer that God would never judge them, that's a different issue. So the even the prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that's conditioned upon their repenting and turning to Christ. So I, I hope that this just makes a bit of sense so that we understand like this is not an issue where there's any um, there, there's any resistance to praying for people to be restored, to come to Christ, to turn from sin to, to the Savior. Rather, this is, this is an instance where it's like, Jeremiah, I'm going to judge them temporally, actually. Do not pray that it will stop. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. My judgment's coming. And so when our prayers are God, no matter, just don't judge them, don't judge them, don't judge them. We can actually sort of impugn the goodness of God's judgment. And this is a whole other issue with Christians as we, as, we, um, as we recognize, hopefully, that God's judgment is good. That when, when God punishes sinners, they are not the victims of God. Rather, this is righteous judgment. They're the criminals being, being punished, including when he punishes or deals with me, even, ch even chastening me. It's a good thing and proper thing that God's doing. So that, this is to say, um, the kind of prayer that God's rejecting, I think, in Jeremiah is the prayer, and I saw this in a movie once where a kid, uh, and you've seen this in real life too, <laughs> a kid runs up and he like does something to his brother that was mean or it was really, it was really wrong, right? And I can't remember what it was. But he immediately says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's running away as he's yelling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you see, this was like in plan the whole time. This is not real, I'm sorry. This is not repentance, I'm sorry. This is just... Don't punish me for the bad thing I just did, which I will do again. Right? That, that's the kind of prayer that God's saying I'm not going to listen to. So, uh, you know, I, I imagine Jeremiah could pray for them in the sense of asking, uh, you know, lead them to repentance, but not don't judge them for their sins. 
Okay, I, I, there's a lot more we could talk about on this, but we're going to be going to your guys' questions from the Q&A here. This is uh, the Friday Q&A. I do this every week at 1 p.m. Pacific time, at least almost every week. If ever it's not happening, it's not because there's a disaster. It's just because it didn't work out that week for me to do it. Um, at least at least almost always it's not a disaster. <laughs> there are disasters, I'm sure. Um, okay, but let's go to question number two. This is from SED, who says, My fiancé's sibling is trans. I'm scared for our future children will, uh, I'm scared our future children will think it's a good thing and that it's right. His family accepts this lifestyle unquestionably. I don't want to cut them out of our lives, but I don't know what else to do to protect our family. How can I be obedient to God and still be loving to his sibling and the rest of the family? Um, well, the first thing I just want to remind you is, Essie, you're, you're struggling with an issue that is, you're not actually confronted with the decision yet. So this is a real issue. Um, it's a real concern. Um, the, and, and you would definitely be looked at very negatively as, as being um, bigoted or, or transphobic or something like that. That's probably the response. And that hurts, man. It hurts when family cuts you off. I, I've had this in my own life. I've had family cut me off. Um, and, and I can only guess at the reasons, right? Like I have all this online teaching that I'm guessing that it's it rubs some the wrong way. <laughs> um, I'm guessing that sometimes I've conducted myself less than godly in their presence, and that hasn't helped. But of course, they, don't, they do that to each other and don't cut each other off. I, I think it's these Christian values that that resulted in that. So I've had that happen, and it's very unpleasant, and I it, it makes me sad, and there's not that much I can do about it at this current point. Um, but except to guard my heart from bitterness, have openness towards them. So this could happen to you, and I, I, hope, it, I hope it doesn't. Um, but... This is where Jesus said he came to bring a sword, and not a physical sword of violence, but a sword that divides people. And that is that when they're, when they're full commitments to Christ, it causes them to make decisions that others say, I will not tolerate that. You know, like not only are we disagreeing here, but I won't tolerate you if you're going to follow Jesus in that way. And so that this is something we have to be ready for as Christians and pray for them and bless them and love them still and hope that the bridge can be rebuilt at some point. So the, the nice thing, though, is, you know, th these are future children you're worried about. And you're going to gain more discernment as a parent as you just live it out. You know, like when you have your kid and they're two months old, you're, you're, you're realizing that, okay, these are the issues at hand. And here's how I'm going to protect my child. When they're three years old, here's the issues at hand. Here's how we'll protect the child. I would look for an opportunity to have your kids still involved in their, in their lives. But if you think that they're going to go out of their way to indoctrinate your kids when you're not, you know, there then I think that would limit the amount of babysitting that could take place. I think that this would limit the environments that you that you allow your kids to be in without you being present. And so there may be something of a balance there. You're not trying to just, you know, tear apart the family, but you're trying to guard your children. These are tough choices that we have to make. Um, the, the thing that I'd recommend, though, for your children is that you don't just protect them from the exposure to like trans ideas and ideologies, but rather, you know, as they grow and as they get to the age where they can start to reason and think things through, which I hear is like around six, that that's when you start to address these ideas very carefully with them, right? Very simply and very carefully. I think a great resource for you on this is uh, an author named Natasha Crane, C-R-A-I-N, Natasha Crane, who's a friend of mine, but um, this is not why I'm recommending her content. It's it's because I think she has very good content for parents on how to have worldview discussions on these kinds of issues with their kids. So she has multiple books out, and you can you can check her stuff out. Yeah, just 
search Google Natasha Crane. Check that out. Inoculate your kids. Don't just insulate them from these ideas. Work through those things. And then if you do have to have <clears throat> uh, restrictions with your family, do it in such a way that it's you're only limiting as much as you have to. You're not going overboard. And they may respond in kind by cutting you out more because of personal offense. But here's the difference. You are not cutting anyone out because you're offended. You're doing it to protect. If they cut you out because they're offended, this is, a, this is something you can't control. Um, I, I hope that advice helps you somewhat. I do not pretend I've given you the whole perfect answer for everything you need to know here. Um, I just hope that what I've shared is at least somewhat helpful. All right, number three, Joel S. says, isn't progressive Christianity simply the outcome of forcing progressive slash leftist ideology onto Christianity? Shouldn't we even make the distinction between politically and religiously progressive? Oh, should we even? Um, that's a good question. Um, so, Joel, the progressive Christianity, isn't, isn't it just the, the forcing of political leftist ideology onto Christianity? Um, in, in some ways, maybe. But I was doing a little bit of random research on this stuff, like on the side. Just listening to random stuff on Friedrich Schleiermacher. <laughs> So Schleiermacher is the father of liberal theology. And when I say liberal theology, I mean the religious side, liberal theology, not uh, modern liberal politics. I do, And I do think we have to separate these because they're not the same, although they overlap in significant ways, but they're not the same thing. So for Schleiermacher, his liberal theology has to do with, um, among other things, the the idea that your spiritual, like you, you being in a, in, a, in a good place spiritually is not based upon actually having relationship with the, an objective living God, right, through a real Jesus Christ who died for your sins and that you are forgiven, you're positionally in Christ and you're assured this heavenly and eternal, uh, eternal new, new heaven and earth experience, resurrected and all that. But rather, it's more about like your consciousness of good, and so here we take the objective external realities of Christianity and the objective claims about God and Jesus, and we change it into being these sort of claims about my internal exper religious experiences. This is familiar. This is progressive Christianity today. It's very much like Schleiermacher's liberal theology, the, the foundations of liberal theology. He's, he's considered one of the most influential, even though you've never heard his name, most of you, one of the most influential theologians in, in the past few hundred years, right? So huge, hugely influential. So Schleiermacher's ideas here of, of sort of using Christian language, but to mean something very different than what it means in the Bible, this is liberal theology. So liberal theology or a progressive theology, what it comes down to, I think, is redefining Christ and redefining God and redefining the focus, the focus. And, and, and I'll just add a caveat. When they don't redefine Christ and God, they change the priority of the truths about Christ and God so they're secondary so that people are allowed to disagree. Okay, maybe I have orthodox theology on these things, but it's okay if you disagree. It's not that important. Um, the, the redefining, though, of objective relationship with God through Christ turns into sensation or awareness of God, awareness of good, which becomes a muddy kind of thing, but it's very, like, therapeutic, right? Because if I'm constantly thinking about how to, like, feel better about my, my, my experiences in the world and feel like I'm thinking about God at all times, even if I'm defining him in an unbiblical way, which can become idolatry, 
um, even if I'm making a new God kind of in my own image. But if I'm thinking about him, it, it's this sort of um, therapeutic meaning. And, and I don't even mean that in a bad sense. It's just that it's what's bad about the therapeutic nature of, of progressive religious stuff is that that's as far as it goes. It doesn't move into the objective realm of actual relationship with God. It's rather sticking in the feeling realm of feeling that you're right with God. Um, that would This is one of my problems with it, with the movement. Of course, um, others are going to object to me. I, I hope they'll at least accurately understand what I'm saying. So should we even make the distinction between politically and religiously progressive? I, I think yes. Because I think politic, political progressives are not the same thing as religious progressives. And you can find conservative people who are politically conservative, but they're religiously progressive. And people who are politically liberal or progressive, and yet they are religiously conservative. Why? Because people can be, you know, th these categories don't always match. So I think it's important for us to make the distinctions. But when we make the distinctions, it's, it's okay for us to understand we're not acting like one doesn't influence the other. The, um, there, there's a, a study that was done on this topic, and it's an actual study. In fact, I'll post a link to it in the description of this video. After I'm done streaming, I'll put the link to it. But the, there's articles online you can look at about this. But the study was basically asking the question, who's more politically committed, right? The progressive Christians or the conservative Christians? And this is an interesting question to ask because one of the complaints about the, from the progressives is that the conservatives are too politically um they're, they're too politically committed, right? And I would actually agree with that complaint. Um, I do think that there's too much of a desire, like with politics, you, you become, you, you join a team, right? You don't just have political principles you try to engage, but you also enjoy, and you also join a team. And we join team conservative. And so then we end up lining up in every area, defending every single thing that is done on that side, even if it's inconsistent with my Christian commitments. Uh, and so that can be a problem. But what, what's interesting is the study revealed that the liberal or progressive Christians, religiously progressive, were even more politically committed and um, very much progressive in their political commitments than the religious conservatives were towards conservative political commitments. That is, they're more political, actually, than, than the other side tends to be. And that's something that's good to know because um, I, I was surprised as I've shared this online a couple of times, people really responding, no, that's not true. That's ridiculous. Da, da, da. And I, I keep sharing this article. Here's an article, actually a study that was done on the topic. And then it's always crickets after that. So I'll just, I'll link the article down below before you tell me how wrong I am. Maybe check it out. All right. Number four, Jake says, my grandpa is dying. I'm, I'm sorry, Jake. I'm sorry, Jake. That is, that is tough. You say he doesn't have long. He has dementia slash Alzheimer's now and has never been a Christian and isn't saved. Is it too late to share the gospel with him? If not, how do I do it effectively? Um, Jake, I, I, I'm so, first. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. This is this is one of those circumstances where life is too hard for words. Um, to have a, a loved one, someone you deeply care about, who's who's dying um, with Alzheimer's. Uh, and dementia, which is which is a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. I'm so sorry. The um, add on top of that that they're that they're not saved and they've never. You, you have good reason to think that they're not a Christian. They never have been, never will be. I, I'm I'm sorry, man. This is this is hard. 
what I want to encourage you with before I answer your question is that you you can trust in God's goodness in the midst of all this stuff. And you may already be there in your mind. But I just want you to remind yourself that God is the just judge and he is good and he'll he'll do what's perfect and right. And that may mean judging a loved one of ours who we don't want to see experience that. But the truth is that we don't really know them the way God does. Wait, especially with grandparents. I mean, most of us, honestly, we don't know our grandparents very well. We have a, a grandchild version of them in our heads. You know, our children don't really understand their parents as well as they think they do usually because parents are a lot more than a parent. It's a whole person there. Grandkids tend to understand their grandparents even less. It's I'm just saying God understands us intimately and knows us completely and he sees our sin issues and he's going to deal with those things through Christ or through justice. And we can trust him in those in those areas. So you're like, you know, is it too late to share the gospel with him? I, I, I would, um, I've had a situation like this where I've shared the gospel with somebody who had no indication of being able to receive that information. And I thought, what's the harm? What's the harm in me just going to them and just sharing with them? You know, just, just speaking words, even if they can't understand me, there's just something that's healthy about human interaction when someone's suffering and going through those hard times. And so it, I, I think go for it would be my encouragement would be go for it. Um, look though at Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle had like a, a similar circumstance where he's like really grieved because he sees the the Jewish people who he loves deeply and how they've rejected Christ, probably more so uh, to a greater degree than your grandfather had. Now, not all the Jews had, right? Paul's a Jew. All the apostles are Jews. The church in Jerusalem is mostly Jewish at the time, right? So he's not, it's not like all Jews had, right? But so many of them had and it made him sad. So he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. He's... He wants to see them saved, and it it grieves him every day. It is unceasing anguish. It's okay to feel that way. It's just not okay for us ever to go into a place where we're blaming God for these things, because he'll go on in Romans 9, and he'll explain the reason why they've rejected as you read on. He's like, here's yes, here's my emotional state. Here's where I'm at. I am grieved daily, and that's totally okay. That's a, totally appropriate. That That's a heart of compassion and love. God is grieved too. Do you think God is not grieved as much as us about those that have rejected him? I think he is very much. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem like, oh, Jerusalem, the one who stones the prophets and kills those who were sent to her. How, how many times I would have gathered your children as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. He grieves even over those he judges. But the responsibility for responding to the gospel is upon them. And that's what he talks about as well in Romans so I, I, I just want to give you that encouragement of that is, it's good to feel that way. Um, it's appropriate to feel that way. And yes, share the gospel. Share the gospel with him. Please do. Um, pray that he'll hear you. Pray that somehow God would open his ears to hear you and hope for that. Number five, let's go to Green is Great, who says, what do you think of the house church movement, Francis Chan? Okay. I don't know that much about Francis Chan's house church movement, um, so I can't really comment in, in an informed way specifically about Francis Chan's house church movement. I, I do know a, a guy, there's a friend I've got who was part of Francis Chan's house church movement, 
specifically was at Francis Chan's house church, and he spoke very highly of it. I have issues with the past few years with where Francis Chan has been going theologically, some strange claims he's been making, um, which are really unfortunate. Um, he's like as sincere a guy as you'll ever meet, I'm sure. And um, uh, I always wondered how Francis Chan, though, orders orders like uh, like Taco Bell, like, I want two tacos. Like, is it is it he's so passionate at all times? I don't know how anyone maintains that. <laughs> Maybe it's only when he's preaching. I don't know. Um, but what, what I would say is, um, about house church movements in general, I'm totally for house churches, hundred percent. You want a house church, go for it. Uh, house churches are wonderful. I mean, the early churches met in homes. Now that's not because they were supposed to only meet in homes. And this is where I'll offer some, some corrective advice, right? We want more churches, not less. I want house churches. I want little churches. I want big churches. I want more churches. Every, every size church will have a different issue. So house churches can tend to be these little like, um, can tend, I shouldn't say tend, but can fall into the trap of becoming these, these little power centers where you have like a matriarch or a patriarch who's kind of domineering over everybody. And because the, you know, he's the leader in their home, he's the leader in their church, he's the leader in their lives. So it, it can end up being a lot, a lot of, of power centralized in one person. Now, some complain that a pastor of a church has too much power, that a senior pastor has too much power. But what you're really saying is we, we think he has too much power over too many people. A house church leader can have too much power over a small number of people as well. So there's a power issue and an abusive power issue that can affect a church of any size. That's absolutely true. House churches can suffer from the potential of lacking gifts because they're such a small community that they can sometimes miss out on other Christians and their gifts. Even though they were meeting in homes in the early church, I doubt it was generally homes with house churches with like four people or five people. It was probably larger gatherings than that that would lend themselves towards the, the, a multitude of different gifts being expressed by the body, right? Instead of just a, a smaller... Now, I'm not saying you should never do a four-person house church we just want to be aware of the potential pitfalls of whatever choices we make, right? Large churches can suffer from the issue where a very small number of people are doing all the ministry work and most of the others just attend and they don't actually do anything with their gifts. So there's another issue that can happen there. All these issues can happen in any church environment. It's good for us just to be aware of them, I think, right? So that you as the, in the leaders and, and the congregants in these, in these different settings can make decisions to try to curb some of the potential pitfalls of your environment. Um, house church leaders can get off on theology, and they don't have as many people around them usually to bring correction and to bounce ideas off and to show them other scriptures. And so sometimes they can go down weird roads. But you know what? Big churches get off on theology too, and sometimes they do it because they're just trying to grow. Oh, I don't want to talk about the issue of homosexuality because it's going to like shrink our church, and it's just not worth the headache. Um, Larger churches can tend to be more easily drawn into the world and worldly ways of thinking. Smaller churches, it seems to me, can be more easily led into strange religious teachings that aren't necessarily worldly. They're just like, that's not quite biblical. I'm just saying there's issues everywhere. And we as people need to continually seek correction from Scripture, correction from each other, and walk in humility, and be very careful to follow the Word of God. Otherwise, house churches are great. Little churches are great. Big churches are great. We need more churches of all kinds. I really, well, let me just say, I have a memory 
years and years ago, there was a house church movement happening like in Bellflower here in California. And they were, um, while it seemed like they had like a really cool thing like this family and relationships, which is another benefit of small churches, is the relationships are so good and that's a huge part of church. But these this small house church movement was very critical of larger churches. We have a we have a, a decent sized building. We have a few hundred people at our church on a regular basis. So this was seen as like you know, they look sideways at us. And then other people at, at our church, I, I should say at least at least one that I'm aware of, right, would look sideways at this house church movement. You know, I'm fine with what you guys are doing, but you know, you got this problem and that problem. This is the thing I want to avoid between the larger and smaller churches. Yeah, large churches have possible problems. I've enumerated several. Small churches have possible problems. I've enumerated several. But the problem is not that they're large or small. Don't just by virtue of someone being a small church, assume that they're just messed up. Or by virtue of someone having a large church, just assume they're messed up. It may be the case, but not just size alone doesn't give you the ability to judge a church as messed up. <laughs> That'd be my opinion. Okay, Don Miguel Miguelio. I thought I was going to say Miguelito, but it's Miguelio, says, why did God endorse levirate marriage? Isn't it wrong to pressure a man to marry someone he doesn't want to? And since marriage will supposedly end in heaven, is love not a factor for God? Okay, let's take tackle these questions. First, let me explain what levirate marriage is for y'all to know. Levirate marriage is the idea that when a um, th this is in the Old Testament, it's in the law of the Old Testament. And this is actually in other cultures as well. But if, let's say I have a brother, a younger brother, and I get married and I die, but I haven't had any kids. According to the Old Testament law, my younger brother is now going to marry my spouse. Now I'm dead, so that marriage is broken, that marriage is over. But he's going to marry my spouse, and there's a specific reason for this in the Old Testament law. He's going to take the firstborn, the firstborn from that marriage, and raise them in my name. This is so that they can inherit the land that would have come to me and carry on the family name. The, now, if you start to think about the Old Testament, you realize how important land is because it's part of the promise of God to Israel. I give you this land to you and your descendants after you. And it was important when they entered the land, they allotted the land. This tribe is over here. This tribe's over here. This tribe's over here. So if you're in this tribe and you're over here, you get this piece of land and if, if you even sell it, you can't sell it. You can lease it out. And after like 50 years, it comes back to you because we got to keep the land in the family because it's connected to God's promises and prophecies. So these issues are bigger than your marriage. That's what I want to say first uh, for you, Don, is these issues are bigger than your marriage. Because, and, and this is where we get our Disney version of marriage. Like the Disney version of marriage is marriage is about pleasing me, primarily about pleasing me about making me happy and about making me fulfilled by taking this other puzzle piece, this other person, and I plug them into me and then I am, I am fulfilled now. There are elements of truth in that, but it's too much self. It's, if, if that's all marriage is to me, that's too much self, too much self-focus, and this leads to divorce. Because what happens is I plug this puzzle piece into me and I go, you got rough edges, I got rough edges. There's problems I didn't even know about you. I didn't know that thing about you. You act this way, you do that way. I'm getting kind of sick of you, I'm trying to remember what I liked about you. Look, you don't even look the same anymore, <laughs> you know, after, after a few years. And so all these things happen, and you start to realize that what got you married was selfish desires. And that's what got you divorced too, selfish desires. 
this is the Disney version of marriage, touts love, not, this is hugely important, I think, the Disney version of marriage touts love, but with a different definition than the biblical one. They tout love as my incredible feelings and sensations and the fulfillment I get from them when I get to have that person who I love. Whereas in scripture, the emphasis in love is this idea of giving self-sacrificially to others. Love is pointed outward, not inward. Love isn't feelings I get that I want to satisfy. Love is actions I take to bless and help others for their sakes. Now, if you think of love like that, right, then you say, you know, um, is not love a factor for God? Well, of course, love is a factor for God. Love your spouse. Not, not just marry the one you love. Love the one you marry. I know this is counterculture. I know this sounds like crazy talk to so many people. But I'll tell you this, our modern culture and attitude towards love, we think we really get it. But our divorce rates are skyrocketing and the health of our marriages are, is tanking. And it may be because what, what is modern in our thinking on these issues is actually wrong in some ways. At least in some ways, not 100% wrong in every aspect, but in some important ways. So yeah, levirate marriage. We're not under it today, right? You can marry whoever you want in the Lord, Scripture says, so they should be a Christian. If you marry someone who's not a Christian, guess what you should do? Stay married, love them, make the best of that marriage, honor God in it. But um, but yeah, why did God endorse levirate marriage? For the sake of prophecy, the land, the the fulfillment of all that God is doing through Israel to carry on that 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 name of Abraham throughout the land of Israel, so that ultimately will lead us to the Messiah and show the faithfulness of God that the nation who does choose him, which is Israel here I'm talking about, um, who he chooses, who follows him, that he will fulfill his promises and bless them. Like these are these are big, big world God issues that are bigger than your marriage. Your marriage is not the most important thing in the world. What your marriage is about is about something that's even more important in this case. Um, so uh, marriage will supposedly end in heaven. Yeah, that's true. There will be no marrying. We won't bring our marriages into heaven and we won't marry people in heaven. I think that we'll probably be closer, not further apart, at least as far as relationships go. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess it's another, another question we could talk about there. Um, isn't it wrong to pressure a man to marry someone he doesn't want to? Uh, no. Nope. That was the other part of your question. Is it wrong to marry, to, t to pressure a man? Nope. I've done that many times. You've been with that girl for three years. You got, you got two kids. Get married. What's wrong with you? Well, I don't want to. Well, I'm pressuring you. You should get married. Coward. <laughs> right? And it is cowardice. Because why won't you, because when you say, why won't you get married? Oh, because, you know, what if she leaves me? Okay, so you're scared. Oh, because what if I decide I, I want to get out of town? Okay, so you're scared to commit. You're, you're, you're selfish and scared to commit. I get it. Like it ends up being those same issues. Yep. I say some stuff. Terrell Taylor. Oh, man, your, your name is a tongue twister, Terrell Taylor. Um, does 1 Timothy 3.2 mean that I must have a wife to be a pastor? What about a man who doesn't have a wife? Yeah, can men who don't have wives be pastors? 1 Timothy 3.2, I did spend some time on this um, when I did my series on uh, my majorly, my one video and some follow-up content on divorce and remarriage. But uh, at any rate, here, therefore an overseer, here's what quali qualifications for, uh, and these are synonym, synonymical terms in the Bible, right? Overseer, bishop, elder, and we usually use in modern English, we usually use the word pastor to refer to those things. 
but sometimes we use elder, whatever, right? But um, at any rate, this is this this does apply to people who want to be a pastor, right? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, this is taken by some to mean you have to be married in order to be in ministry in this high position in ministry. I think that this is mistaken for a couple of reasons. Um, first off, um, it, it's understandable why someone would think this. Are you, well, are you the husband of one wife? No, I'm single. Well, then you can't be married. You, you can't be in ministry. Um, that's understandable, like, because you're just taking it very, very literally. The question is, what does the phrase the husband of one wife mean at the time? At the time. And it's not just a statement about marriage versus polygamy versus singleness. So you can't have three wives and you can't have no wives. You have to be the husband of one wife. But it's there's other things. Um, and, and let me show you first off the woodenness if we take it that way. The husband of one wife, if taken to mean you have, you have to have one wife, no more, no less. If we take it that way, it actually means that if, you're, if your pastor who's pastoring your church, if his wife dies, he gets fired. Because he's no longer the husband of one wife. I want you to think about that for a minute. He gets fired because he's no longer the husband of one wife because of how we're understanding this passage. That starts to feel like, hey, maybe we should take a look at this more carefully. Now, the phrase in Greek is, is more literally translated, right? Like a, 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 a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, that's a bit different, isn't it? And I think that, that the, when we look at its use in context in ancient Greek, it doesn't seem to be talking about you can't be single, you have to be married. It seems to be talking about faithfulness in marriage. This is saying the man is faithful in his marriage. Does he have to have the marriage is the question. And I think the answer is no. And I'll tell you why from uh, 1 Corinthians 7. But he doesn't have to have the marriage, but he has to be faithful in the marriage. Now, let me explain. Um, gosh, there's so many things I want to say about this, but I want to be quick. So first I'll say this. Some go, okay, well, then it must not apply to a polygamy. So he can be, he can have lots of wives. Actually, that, that was the word one in there, the, the husband of one wife or a one woman man, a one woman man. One is in there because it does rule out polygamy, even though polygamy is not the main focus of the passage. It's faithfulness in marriage. But it does imply through the wording that polygamy itself is an unfaithfulness in marriage. And it is because you're sleeping with someone other, you know, you're married to her, but you're sleeping with her. Or you're married to her, but you're sleeping with her. It's this disastrous mess of marriage. First um, Corinthians 7 also indicates that singleness is a good option for people to choose. Think about this carefully. Singleness is a good option for people to choose, though they can get married. And the reason why it's a good option is because singleness allows you more time to do ministry. Consider that for a second. Singleness lets you have more time to do ministry. Yet, that interpretation of 1 Timothy 3.2 would be, yet if you're single, you can't be a pastor. That's weird, right? Like if I'm single, I can't, I can't be a pastor. That, that seems very strange. If singleness is desirable because it gives me the ability to actually do more ministry. Like this, this would be an internal conflict. But let's add more. Jesus was single. Was he disqualified from different ministry because he was single? The apostles, they usually were married. But Paul, he had no wife he brought with him. He, he wasn't married. Yet Paul is an apostle and a fellow elder. The apostles call themselves elders. So they're, they're elders and apostles. They're not uh, one or the other. They're, they're apostles, but they're also elders. So he's in this elder overseer position himself, and he's single. 
So you get that we're, we're misinterpreting First Timothy 5.2 in that regard. I hope that helps. One woman, man. Um, the last thing I'll say is this. Some would use this in um, the fact that it says one woman, man, as a way of bridging the gap over to, oh, it just means faithful in marriage. And therefore, it could apply to men or women. But I don't know of any ancient Greek resource, any ancient Greek resource that uses that one woman, man to ref refer to women. It seems to only refer to men. And so we see one evidence, one evidence of several that men are to be filling the position of elder. Whereas later in First Timothy, there's the phrase used, uh, First Timothy 5, there's a phrase used of a one man woman, a one man woman, which is a woman who's faithful in marriage. So if if Paul wanted to say that, that men or women could be in this office of overseer, he would have had to word this differently. He could have said, like, you know, pistis, faith, right? Or, you know, faithful in marriage. That's what he could have said. But he says, one woman, man. So now it, it, it means faithful marriage, but in the context of being a husband, not of being a wife. I hope that helps. I hope I'm not confusing anybody. I'm bringing in all sorts of debates. All right, go to question number eight here. This is Diane Chen, who says, is there anything wrong with learning sleight of hand magic or using it in evangelism? What an interesting question, Diane. I, you know, the only thing I could think that might be wrong, at least that someone might say is wrong with sleight of hand magic, uh, there's two things. One is, hey, you're being misleading. You're being deceptive. And lying or deceiving is wrong. And magic is built upon the idea of deception. And the other complaint would be that magic is magic, right? And the Bible's opposed to using witchcraft. And so you shouldn't do that. Um, I guess there's a third objection I'll get to after I explain the first two. So the first objection is that lying is it deceitful. Well, there's two different kinds of magicians, right? Um, more modern magicians are they're not actually trying to trick anybody. They're just trying to entertain them, right? Watch me do this trick and you'll be puzzling over how I got it done. You'll be like, how did they do that? That how, wow, I'm really, but you know, it's a trick. Like, you know, they didn't teleport the woman across the room. You know that they, they did, you know, there's some trick you just can't figure it out. And you find that interesting, entertaining and fascinating. I do too. Okay. I think it's very fascinating uh, to watch these tricks and try to figure them out. And then once I figure them out, it's like not as fun anymore, of course, but I still want to figure them out. Um, so I don't think that this is deceptive because nobody's being tricked, not in the in the deceitful sense. They're being stumped in the sense of a problem they can't figure out, but it's not a it's not a lie. Uh, now, if you are using it like some did in the past, uh, a lot of like sort of voodoo religious stuff and say shamans, if you go to like some tribal cultures, shamans will often use magic tricks as a way of tricking the people into thinking that they have real powers. This was happening in the first century too. In the book of Acts, we read about this guy, Simeon, and he's a magician. And he does tricks that he, they buy and sell, these magicians buy and sell, but they don't do it to entertain people. They do it to convince the people they have superpowers. So the people will then give them money, will follow their instructions and things like that. So um, that kind of magic stuff is, is evil, <laughs> is deceptive and wrong. Let me, hold on, I got a... Um, Got a uh, important notice here. How is that even possible? Getting much worse. Well, unfortunately, if the sink is off, uh, that's not something I can fix in real time because I have to actually, yeah, I'm sorry, guys. These are just growing pains. If apparently the audio sync, my, my lips are not moving at the same exact time. Um, you say it's getting worse progressively. That makes no sense to my brain and therefore I have no way to fix it. I'll have to like rewatch the video later and spend some hours on this. I apologize. Um, this is the growing pains of setting up new equipment, which I've done. Um, and I did test it, but 
there's obviously issues I didn't find. Okay, so um, the uh, the second issue, the second objection to magic could be that it's just associated with witchcraft. Like magic is magic, and magic is is witchcraft, and witchcraft is evil. And I think we can be careful to distinguish the same word being used in a different context. Usually in, in modern entertainment, like what you're talking about, using this as in evangelism, where you do like a little magic trick, you know, and, and then you get their attention, make them laugh, and then you give them a, uh, a tract or something or tell them the gospel. Um, you're using the word magic to refer to um, tricky illusions and cool tricks that puzzle the mind and seem impressive. You are not using the word magic to refer to, I'm contacting demonic forces and accessing their power that I might do things that are supernatural. Oh, you don't mean anything like that at all, right? So here's the same word being used in very, very different ways. So I'm gonna let those ways be different. If you're using magic in a way that's inter entertainment, it's not deceptive, and it's not even pretending to connect to demonic things or, or actual witchcraft, even pretending to would seem to be a bad idea and seem to be a moral problem, um, then you're fine. But if you're using magic in a way that is tapping into some, some what the what the Bible's rebuking when it when it talks about magic, uh, misleading others, uh, using spiritual forces and powers that are that are ungodly and wicked, um, however successful that is, if it's even the attempt, then that would be a wrong thing. So, the final objection could be, well, you know, it could lead down that road. And there's a problem with this objection. This is a slippery slope argument, right? Like, well, if you're going to use magic for entertainment, like it could lead down a road that ends up with even evil things. You could say this about anything, right? Like, um, hey, you want a piece of candy? Ah, but you know, sugar's not really healthy. That piece of candy could lead down the road of you overusing sugar and causing yourself physical problems or gluttony. Oh, man, ah, you probably shouldn't do it. Hey, you want to take a day off and just go on a drive? Like, you know, that sounds cool, but taking that day off could lead down the road towards laziness and taking lots of days off. And I, you can, unless you show me that it will lead down a road, that it's likely to lead down a road, I'm, I'm going to ignore that argument because otherwise um, you can't even breathe. <laughs> you can't do anything in life because everything could lead down a road. Let's go to question number nine. Jay Towles says, hey, Pastor Mike, in Matthew 22, verses 23 through 29, Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for trying to trap him, saying they don't know the scriptures. Where in the scriptures is this topic of marriage in heaven mentioned? Well, that's a really good question. I wonder if I can remember the answer off the top of my head. <laughs> Let's just read through the verses and we'll see if it jogs my memory. Uh, the same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Now, the context, right? The Sadducees, they're so sad, you see. It's because they don't believe in a resurrection. Um, they're going to try to ask Jesus a stump question that's meant to demonstrate that the idea of a resurrection is silly. So they said, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow. That's levy right marriage we talked about earlier. And raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Having no offspring left his wife to his brother, so too the third, down to the seventh. That lady has a lot of bad luck. Uh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now you could tell this is the kind of thing the Sadducees always brought to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And they probably brought it to them all the time. Oh yeah, whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be? 
And then the Pharisees probably debated, well, will she be the first husband's wife or the last husband's wife? Um, none of them had any kids, so we can't say she'll be the wife of the one that had the kids. Like, how do we solve this conundrum? So Jesus answered them, you are wrong. <laughs> you know, for the, for the tone police on the internet who are always like, even when you say something true, they're like, well, you shouldn't have said it like that. I mean, that sometimes is true. You shouldn't say it like that. That is occasionally true. But you hear it every time you say anything online. There's someone going, well, I don't really think that that was the right way. to. That was the best way to say that. Like, I always think of Jesus saying things like this and how they would all say it to him, right? You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, Jesus, do you think that built a bridge with the Sadducees? Do you think they left there more likely to accept and embrace your love? Or do you think they left there bitter and hurt and bothered? And I'm, I'm just saying, guys, we can't base all of our, interaction, our action, interactions on the emotional response of those we're talking to. Even though we consider it, it's not the whole story. All right, so uh, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So there's something they don't know about the scriptures. Um, then Jesus goes on. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So the question is this. When Jesus says they don't know the scriptures, is he talking about, they don't know that there's scripture teaching that marriage doesn't happen in heaven, or that they don't know there's scripture saying that the resurrection is real? And I think I'm inclined to go with the latter. And here's the reason why. Jesus offers a judgment on the resurrection. In the resurrection, they don't marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. They aren't angels. They're like the angels in regards to marriage. They're, angels don't marry, and we won't either. Um, but when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, then he offers a scripture. So it might be that in your question that the, the way to make sense of it is to think, oh, Jesus is perhaps offering a specific judgment on um, marriage to explain the riddle, but he's offering a scripture on, re on the resurrection. And here he quotes from the Old Testament where God speaks and he says, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, all of those three men were dead at the time when God said it. They were already dead, but God still is their God. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, meaning Abraham, I'm still his God. I'm still Isaac's God. I'm still Jacob's God. So Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the living. He can't be like, I am your God still. If you're dead, if you're like dead, dead, like you're gone, like you've ceased to exist and you have no future. And so I, I'm going to suggest that um, maybe what, this is my working hypothesis here, right? Maybe what Jesus is doing is offering a scripture to support the resurrection and a judgment on the nature of the resurrection, that he's a, a revelation, something new information that explains an answer to a riddle. Dorlsch has a question and says, is there any extra biblical evidence for the census in Luke 2? I heard it would be a pretty dumb idea to send people to their place of birth if you later wanted them to pay taxes from their current home. Um, yeah, um, that might sound dumb. I mean, okay, so let's take the second part of your question first. Oh, for, for, first, I'll just mention this. This is the census that Luke says is in the time of Quirinius. When, when Quirinius was governor, um, and at least that's how many translations put it. And there's the the timeline that Luke Luke's very careful about his timeline. He, he's of all the gospels, 
and in, in the book of Acts as well, he's very careful to offer like in the 15th year of Tiberius, this happened. He'll give really good details about times, who was ruling at that time. He's more of a historian in the way that he approaches how he records things in Luke and Acts. But he mentions that, that when the travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem happened, that this was because of a census where the Roman government was like, hey, go back to your homeland. And um, I'll just say this to the second part of your question. There's no real problem with saying that people would go to the place of their birth. Um, it doesn't mean what, like I've heard some cynics say, that they had to go to the place of their ancient ancestor's birth. It says, that, you know, they may have gone to the place of their own birth. Like, this could help because here's the deal. As they're being logged and they're paying taxes, they're paying a census tax. If I'm in Nazareth, I could say, oh, well, I'm, I'm from Bethlehem. I already paid in Bethlehem. And it just is a way of tax dodging. And so I'm just giving you a hypothesis here. I don't know of a historical problem with asking people to move to their uh, their home location to pay a tax. Now, maybe there was another option on the table. They paid extra. They didn't have to. Or I don't know. But I don't see the historical problem there. It might sound dumb, but lots of policies sound dumb when you're not in the government. And you're not actually enforcing them. and You don't know the reasons why they were put there. But the real issue with this census of Quirinius, which is why you asked, is there extra biblical evidence for it, is that in Luke, it says there was a census in the time of Quirinius, or it may say that. We'll get to that in a second. But in Josephus, a first century historian, he shows that Quirinius was not governor at the time when Luke says this, right? The timeline of Luke is pretty clear. And Josephus shows that Quirinius was not governor during that time. Now, there's a lot of people who've done a lot of work on this. Um, Craig Blomberg has a book where he talks about it in some detail. Um, he has a book on the reliability of the scriptures, and I can't remember the name of it. Craig Blomberg, though. And he has a little section, I think it's towards the end of the appendix or something like that, on the, on the census of Quirinius. It might be in the appendix. You could, you could, you'll find it, though, in the book. And he talks about several different things here. And there's, there's two things. There's like, okay, there's like five things to recognize. Well, first, let's recognize this. There's literally just one historical source versus one other historical source, Luke versus Josephus. Now, Josephus has, so we don't have like this mountain of history against Luke here. We have one guy against, supposedly against Luke. Um, so the question is, who do you go with? Now, a lot of non-Christians will default go with Josephus. It, they just will. And a lot of Christians will default go with Luke, right? Well, if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, it makes sense to go with Luke. Well, obviously Luke is right. Josephus is wrong there. Uh, that's not irrational to say that, but it's hard to say that to a non-believer who doesn't believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. So then you've just got two historical sources to, to analyze. And we could look at Luke and say, well, Luke is actually remarkably good as a historian. Um, there, there's, a, there's a book um, somewhere on my bookshelf on this topic um, about the acts in its setting in ancient history. Is it Beckwith who wrote it? I can't remember right now. Um, anyway, Acts and Luke and Acts and like all the incredible historical data that's in there that's actually very accurate. Luke talks about detailed things like the way that shipping would work, like in his recounting of Paul and the shipwrecking and stuff like that, the, the ship lines, the, the actual journey paths that they would take, all this stuff is really detailed and very accurate. So Luke's pretty reliable. How about Josephus? Josephus, historians have said, is, are, is reliable when it comes to things he witnessed himself. He's, he actually sometimes get, gets, he says some fanciful stuff, right? Like he's embellishing things. But he's more reliable when it was when it when it was things that happened while he was alive. When you go back 
before he was alive, Josephus tends to become less reliable. This makes sense. He wasn't there. He's relying on other sources more. And the census of Quirinius would have been before Josephus was alive. Could Josephus have been mistaken? It's possible. Another way out of this in Luke 2 is to just look at the Greek. And I think this is where Craig Blomberg leans. Um, here's the verse. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's the debate. Wait, you know, but Josephus shows that Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria during this time. Well, this word when could also be translated before because, uh, you know, words do double and triple duty in certain words do. And these, this, this particular word in the Greek, it does do double and triple duty. It's an entirely fair, and I mean this, this is a safe way to deal with the issue. It's a fair way to say, hey, this was before Quirinius was governor of Syria. So perhaps there is um, another census in the time of Quirinius at a later time, and Luke is saying this happened before that. That's a fair translation of the Greek, whereas the English removes that. The word when here in the English, it removes that. So this is why there's a footnote. See the little number one here? There's a footnote here in the ESV that says, or this was before right, the time of Quirinius. So they're acknowledging it can be translated either way. So I'm saying uh, it could be that Josephus is wrong. could be that Quirinius was, another option is Quirinius was governor more than once. Josephus talks about him being governor later. Maybe he was governor earlier as well. Uh, lots of politicians come in and out of offices. This is not that uncommon. Or Luke isn't even claiming that Quirinius was, was first. Um, or some just say the tiebreaker between Luke and Josephus is Luke, not Josephus, because he's not as reliable when it comes to those time periods. There's more that can be said on this. I'm not up on the most recent research on this topic, so I couldn't, I, I, I can't share that with you. One of these days, I'll, 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 I'll do that. All right, Meg Milk, Milk, Mega, Mega Milk, Mega Milk says, was Jesus still fully God when he died? What happened to his divinity between God turning his face away and the resurrection? This is a hugely important question when it comes to our Christology, the things we believe about Jesus. And I'll say this, that the church is pretty consistent. The believers, the theologians are pretty consistent throughout time in saying, this is very important. At no point did Jesus stop being God. Truly God, right? He was, when you say he's fully God, that's a, that, that's a word I try not to use because it can be confusing. Because how can someone be fully God and fully man? What do you mean by fully? I'm not, I'm not sure how that works. And now I'm sort of dividing. It, it, just, it just gets confusing. So I like to use the phrase truly God. Jesus was truly God and truly man. Um, I think it's just a, maybe a more careful way of putting it for your consideration. So I'll ask it this way. Was Jesus still truly God when he died? And what happened to his divinity between God turning his face away, the Father turning his face away, and the resurrection? And I think that at no point did he stop being God. Uh, he laid aside his glory, Philippians tells us, when he, in, when he took on human form. But he didn't stop being deity. He's always deity. He's affirmed to be God many times in the scriptures while he's walking the earth. This means that laying aside his glory was not laying aside his divinity. What does he seem to be laying aside? Well, he's coming as a human. He comes in human form. He's truly human, but he's still truly God. But he's operating like with this humble human form. He's not in this exalted, glorified state, right? Heavenly over everything. I mean, he's 
He has the authority to do those things, but he's not exercising that authority. He has the ability to know all things, but he chooses not to at all times. He has the ability to use just power at all times, but he doesn't. He limits himself. He eats. He sleeps. He gets tired. Uh, all this stuff. At, my point here is during Jesus' earthly life, he never stopped being God. Why would we think he stopped on the cross? Well, oh, God can't die, you might say, but God can't die. Scripture says it. Yes, well, that was why Jesus had to take on human form, because if, if he didn't also become man, he couldn't die at all. But that human body could die. The human form could die. And so God could then, through humanity, experience death. But then he couldn't, he couldn't stay down because death could not hold him because he is life. Life is in himself, as Scripture says, so he conquered and has victory. When the Father turned his face away, this wasn't the separation of the Trinity. The idea here is that the Father you know, allows and even, even orchestrates this justice punishment for my sin coming upon Jesus, and he doesn't rescue him from that fate. The Father allows him to go to the cross, doesn't save him from the fate. That's the turning his face away. The, the sense in which punishment for my sin falls on Jesus in, and the, the sky gets dark to show the shame of it all, right? The forsakenness of Jesus on the cross. But that is not to say that in the very nature of the Trinity that God has been split in two, where you have the Father and the Holy Spirit here and you have the Son over here. I think that that's going too far. That's something we don't want to say. So I hope that that helps. Jesus never stopped being God at any one moment in time. He just laid aside glory didn't use many of his uh, divine abilities and walked in human form. But at no point was he not God. Yeah. Number 12, anonymous question. What should a Christian wife do if her husband doesn't want to work on their marriage? Expert expects her to do almost everything when it comes to responsibilities and doesn't provide enough needs. Um, uh, you... There's probably a hundred things you should do, uh, to be completely honest with you. Um, I'm going to give you some advice here, and some of it's going to be pleasant, and some of it's going to be maybe unpleasant, and some of it maybe you've heard before, and you might think, I already know that, Mike, whatever I'm about to tell you. Um, all that being said, this is a super vague scenario, and so I have to be careful how I give advice to vague scenarios, because my advice could be destructive in your life. right? You're, the, the Christian wife, what do you do? If your husband doesn't want to work on your marriage, he expects you to do almost everything when it comes to responsibilities and doesn't provide enough for needs. I don't know what needs are. I don't know what the provision is. I don't know what the response from the husband would be to say like, well, you're missing this or you're ignoring that. I don't know any of those things. So as a counselor, it's reckless for me to come in there and give counsel and advice. A lot of people today would be like, divorce him, drop him, you know, make an ultimatum, do that. And I'm just saying, this is, a, I'm throwing a wrecking ball into a marriage I've, I know nothing about. So that being said, I can only default to general principles when I have more general information. And general principles are first things first. You are a Christian before you're a wife. Before you're a wife, you're a Christian. You're a daughter of God. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And you seek to honor Christ in your marriage even more than your husband. You seek to honor him, your savior, more than anything that's going on with your husband. And so this is the call, and I know we fall short all the time. I fall short. My call is to love my wife as Christ loved the church because of Christ, not because of her. And so even if my wife was to fail in all her responsibilities, I'm still supposed to love her. And I 
failed in this so many times, but this is the call and I refuse to lower the call to match my, my behavior, right? I'm gonna reach my behavior up towards the call and never bring the call down. Your call is to, is to love, is to respect, and is to honor your husband for the sake of Christ. That's the number one thing. This is about you and God. This isn't about you and your husband. There's more though. It's entirely appropriate, like Matthew 18 says, when, when your brother sins against you, and this applies to you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you. If your husband's doing these things, it is entirely appropriate for you to go and tell him what's going on between the two of you and say, this is wrong. Husband, I love you. Like, I've got the plank out of my eye. I love you. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. But you have, you're doing what's wrong. You're doing wrong to me, and it needs to change. This doesn't mean it will work because you can never control someone else's behavior, someone else's interactions. You just can't control them. So you can only do your part, but there's there's no special formula of words that will make your husband behave better. And there's no special scenario where you can just cause his behavior to change. You can only control your own behavior. This is the sad and glorious reality of life because what it means is that in all the scenarios of life, you're actually focusing on discipleship, not just on changing other people in your circumstances, but in honoring Christ in what you're going through. Now, if things are really extreme, like especially if, if, if he won't listen to you, you've probably tried talking to him before, but if you come humbly, and if you come with no plank in your eye and there's still no receptivity, I say Matthew 18, go bring another. Especially if your husband's part of a church, bring someone else in and, and invite them in. Hey, godly person, you need to come in and help me with this. This is unacceptable behavior and I need my husband to, to change. I can't make him, but I do need it. Bring them in. Read Matthew 18 and follow those steps. I pray that God gives you wisdom. I really do pray that God gives you wisdom. Um, for me, when I feel that I'm being wronged in my marriage, the most difficult thing and the thing I work on the most is trying to get past my own anger and my own bitterness before I address those other those issues with my spouse. And that, that's going to be the hardest hurdle for me, for other, for many people. I recommend that's what you start with. First, get the plank out of your eye. And then it's okay to go to them and talk to them about the other issues. So, Lord, help you. Sorry, I can't be of more service. Number 13. Um, Alexis Cifuentes says, Mike, how can we be less self-aware or self-conscious? It stops me from preaching to anybody because my thoughts tell me I'm being disingenuous. Um, <clears throat> so I'll, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again, because this was like a big light bulb moment for me on this very topic, and I, it might help you too. So I was walking into church one day, and on my way to church, I noticed this piece of litter on the ground. And I thought to myself, Look, look, look at the, the weirdness that went through my mind in like two seconds. I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to pick up this trash. And then I thought, oh, but others would probably like that I picked up this trash and they might think highly of me. You know, he's a pastor and he's just picking up trash off the ground to make the church look nicer outside. And then I thought, oh, but what if they think that I'm doing this for them to look at me? And what if I am doing it for them to look at me? Oh, you know, I, I don't know if I should do this or not. And I realized I was going through this whole rigmarole in my brain where I was like weighing the, the, the outward visuals that are being, and I finally just stopped. And I thought, I cannot live life like that. <laughs> you cannot live life with that kind of neurotic thinking in your head. So then I asked myself this, what would be the right thing to do if none of those other things were factors? 
And the answer is picking up this trash. Go pick up the trash. That's doing the right thing for the right reasons. I think this, when you have a question about, um, now let's see, I'll find your question again. There it is. Um, how can I be less self-aware, self-conscious? It stops me from preaching to anybody because my thoughts tell me I'm being disingenuous. Those thoughts are a waste of time. You should only ask yourself this. Is it good to share the gospel with that person? Is it good to tell that person about Jesus? Is it good to give them this truth? And if the answer is yes, you do it. And if you're thinking, but what if my motives are this? And you go, I don't care. I'm ignoring those issues and I'm doing what's best because it's best. You may well have lingering issues like, boy, I feel good about that moment. I'm, and maybe you decide not to tell people about that little preaching moment you had, not to go boast about it. And then you thank God for it and you walk in humility. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share with them. I pray you bless them. Help me to be humble about this, but I am not gonna muzzle myself from sharing God's good truth with people because of my neurotic thinking. This is advice I give to me and it's advice I give to you. The way you can think about yourself less is by saying, who cares what I'm thinking? What is the right thing to do? I'm going to do it. Conserv Conservateer um, has a question, says, I have issues praying every day because I feel like I don't have anything to pray about. What would you suggest to help with this? Um, well, I, I would suggest um, several things. Um, you can use the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with using the Lord's Prayer verbatim, you know? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like the, you could actually just walk through the Lord's Prayer verbatim. That's a great thing to do. You're welcome to do that. I would recommend it. Um, the, the danger in that is that you don't let your prayers be empty where you're repeating the phrase. So you're repeating it a dozen times. I don't know why you would do that. Um, but you, but praying it even just once through is a healthy way to pray. You just make sure that you mean every phrase. So maybe pray it slowly and think about the phrases and mean them as you pray them. And maybe alternate and start, instead of just saying, hollow be your name, think of other ways of saying similar ideas so that you're keeping this thing fresh in your heart and mind. Um, in addition to this, I'd recommend making a prayer list, a list of individuals and things to pray for. Keep it on your phone, keep it on your person. Um, and you've literally got a list you could work through and you will find that that list grows very quickly and easily once you start thinking of things to pray for. And then you will have lots to pray for when you're praying. Um, other stuff you could do is there's uh, there's like praying through the Psalms where you're reading the Psalms responsively and you, whatever they're praying about, you think about how that relates to your life and you start praying about those things too. And so these are other ways of, of doing this as well. So I, I hope that you find those things helpful. It's okay when you're praying that it's also not just about requests. Your prayers can be about worship. Your prayers can be about God's goodness and glory. Th just thanking God, listing things to thank God for that he's done for you. And that's an important part of prayer as well. So yeah, um, there's other stuff, but I hope that th those things help you. Let's go to question 15. Anonymous Narwhal says, uh, hey, Mr. Narwhal, how do I defend the Christian faith with my family when they always bring up Genesis 22:18, Arguing that Islam can also lead to salvation because it's an Abrahamic faith. Thank you for your advice. Let's look at Genesis 22:18, and we'll consider how your family's using this verse. So their idea seems to be, because of whatever we're about to read, this means that, that Islam, the belief system, can lead to salvation, eternal life. God speaking to Abraham, if I remember correctly in this passage, it says, and in your offspring, yeah, this is definitely Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. 
So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, in your offspring, all the nations. Now, uh, Paul the Apostle quotes this passage in Galatians. I think it's Galatians. Um, and he he refers to this as being Jesus specifically. So in your offspring, in, in Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This, this does seem to be a reference ultimately to Jesus. That this is, yes, there's a, there's a blessing that comes upon the world through Israel and through God's work in Israel, but the primary, the funnel of that blessing comes down to the person of Jesus. Now, I don't really know how your family would use this to say Islam. Is it because all nations will be blessed? Does, are they thinking Islam is the nations that are being blessed, or are they thinking Islam is the offspring? Which one are they thinking? I don't know which one they're thinking. If Islam is the offspring, how does that make them saved? If offspring is a whole multitude of people, we know that lots of Jews aren't saved, even in the New Testament times. We read in, earlier in Romans 9 where Paul's like, I'm grieved continually because so many of my fellow Jews are not saved. So just being the offspring of Abraham doesn't make you saved. So if you think Islam is the nation, they're the offspring. Or if you think they're part of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Islam's not a nation. And certainly the Bible isn't saying that everybody in every nation will be blessed. So that doesn't make any sense either because lots of people in the nations are not saved. Rather, it's saying that there's a funnel. Abraham, through his offspring, there will be some things that happen that bring blessings across to all people, not just to his offspring, but to all people. That is the gospel of ultimately the gospel of Christ. Jesus comes, he shows up, he comes to the Jewish people, he preaches, he lives, he he then dies for their sins, rises again, and then tells his disciples, now go take this message into all the world, preach the gospel. This is the blessing going, funneling out from Jesus to all the world. Why does this not apply to Islam? Um, because Islam is not a people, Islam is not a nation, Islam is a religion, and there are people who are committed to that religion. They're Islamic, but they're not Islam. So Islam is a religion. And the core tenets of Islam are exactly the thing that means they can't be saved if they're holding it. Islam's core tenets, many don't know this. They just think Islam means peace. <laughs> or, or something very meme-like like that. Every kind of shallow understanding of Islam. Islam's core tenets involve a rejection of Jesus explicitly. They say that God is one, meaning there's no trinity. That, that's how they mean that phrase, right? We, I would affirm God is one, but, but when they say it, they mean there's no trinity. Um, then they say that God is not begotten and has no begotten, right? There, there's no son of God. So they deny the person of Christ. Islam is also based on the idea that not only that Jesus is not God with us, Jesus is not deity, but also that Jesus never died on the cross. This is an important tenet or belief in Islam. Jesus never died on the cross at all, thereby also denying his resurrection. So they deny the person. This is part of Islam. They deny the person of Christ. He's not God. He's not God with us. They deny the work of Christ. He never died on the cross. They deny the, the resurrection of Christ. He never resurrected from the dead. These are, these are core tenets that are part of Islam. So the blessing that came through Abraham was through Jesus. And Islam... The belief system rejects that person and that blessing. So this is this is a serious problem. Now, there's probably some is uh, you know Muslims who are uninformed, just like there's Christians who are uninformed. There's Christians who are probably like, they're witches. They're, they're into witchcraft and Wicca, and they, they go, I'm a Christian witch. And you're like, dude, you don't even know what those words mean anymore. Um, so there's Muslims who would be like, I'm Muslim. 
and you ask them what they believe about Jesus. They go, oh, he died for my sins and rose again. And you'll be like, oh, you're, so you're a Christian. You just think you're Muslim. <laughs> and I'm happy for that. I'm glad for this. But Islam, those who hold faithfully to the beliefs of Islam, have rejected core necessary truths about the one who can save you. So um, your family, I don't even know how they're using this verse. I don't even, I'm so confused by this. Um, it's just a verse out of context, unfortunately. All right, let's go to number 16. This is Colton Hood, who says, I work for a company that is owned by a professing Christian. He makes inappropriate jokes. I don't know if rebuking or correcting my boss is proper or not. How do I go about that, about this? Um, the general rule for correcting anybody in error um, would be that you do so, well, here, I'll take you there. It's Galatians chapter six. Um, on the way there though, let me tell you this. I, I don't think it's wrong for you to correct your boss on Christian issues. You're not telling him how to run his business, not directly. You're not, you're not trying to assert authority over him in the workplace. You're not doing that. You're coming to him as a Christian brother. And as Christians, we are equals. And it's entirely okay. I'm a pastor, but, but anybody could come to me and tell me, Mike, you've sinned in this way. Anybody could. And, there, and so that authority structure doesn't, does not stop you from going to him to talk to him about those issues. But you got to be super careful how you do it. Brothers, Galatians 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, now here's what you do about it. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This one, this one phrase, this one sentence is got tons of stuff, right? The person's caught in a transgression. The idea is that, you know, sin is, sin brings us into slavery. Sin brings us into its power. And you see him falling under the power of sin uh, in multiple ways on a regular basis. And it's not just a trivial thing. Um, I mean, no sin is trivial, but, um, but we don't rebuke every single issue we see. So this is a significant issue. You think it really does necessitate rebuke. Here's what you should do. First, are you spiritual? Are you, are you spiritual? Well, I'm a very spiritual person. Ah, but you might misunderstand how the Bible means spiritual. We often go, I'm spiritual, not religious, by which we mean something like, I have spiritual vibey vibes. And the Bible means spiritual like you walk in the spirit, right? Like love, patience, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Self-control, that's the one everyone leaves out when they say I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, so this is about living in a godly, not just godly like you're, you're not sinning in your life, but also in the character of Christ, like loving, joyful, gracious, kind, gentle character. This is the spiritual person, and it, which is convicting to me, even just thinking about it right now, and hopefully it's encouraging to you guys as well in the same way. But you need to be this, okay? You need to first do some work on yourself and make sure that you're in this place. You're in this, this, this place of being genuinely spiritual. Read Galatians 5, right? Here's Galatians 6 about being spiritual. And in Galatians, same book, it gives a list of what it means to walk in the spirit. Read that list and think about it. Now, what should you do? You should restore him. It doesn't just say rebuke him. Isn't that interesting? It, now, restoring him involves rebuking him, but the verb here is restore because your agenda, your goal is not, that's it, I'm gonna vent my frustrations at you because of you sinning like this all the time. It's never like that. Instead, it's, I'm going to try to bring you back by telling you the problems, but my goal is restoration. My goal is to bring you into godlier living, right? Restoration. So make sure that's your goal. And you have to do it in a spirit of gentleness. 
in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this is a, the general rule. There's times for harshness. There are times, but the general rule is gentleness. Do this. Go to him individually, privately, just the two of you. Tell him you respect him. Here's a gentle thing to do. Tell him you love him. Tell him you, you're, you, you see his Christian commitment and you have the same commitment. You're both followers of Jesus. And because of that, you were hoping you could talk to him about some things that you were concerned about. And after telling him those issues as gently as you can, affirm to him again that you care about him and love him. And then that might be one way to approach that. Um, yeah, I hope you find that helpful. Yeah. Number 17, Carrie Murray says, would it be better to send children to a Catholic school or a Seventh-day Adventist school? We're looking to take our children out of public school, and these are the only two options available to us. Um, okay, so this is a challenge because I don't know as much about the Seventh-day Adventists as I would like. Um I would, I mean, I would, you know, my gut is like, yeah, I'd go with Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> if I had to, if, if I had to pick between those two options, that's what I would go with, Carrie, because um, uh, in a Catholic school, you know, and every school is different. So you may or may not even have very many religious elements in that school. Um, there are Catholic schools that teach very little theology, uh, but they do have a lot of iconography and things like that. And so the, so the beliefs are more absorbed than taught, whereas um, in, in and, and there are, some great and true beliefs in Catholicism, but there are some other very serious issues that are there. Very, very serious issues, huge issues. So I, they're big enough that I couldn't send my kid to a Catholic school um, if I had any, just about, just about any other option. I mean, um, that sounds hateful to people, uh, except that they're, they're, in, they're hearing me say, there are doctrinal truths about God that are taught there that aren't true, and I love God and I love my kids, but what they're actually thinking I'm saying is, I am a Catholic hater, and so I wouldn't, but I can't fix people who do that with my words, because those aren't my words. Those are your words, not mine. <laughs> um, so the Seventh-day Adventist school, I think that their theology is probably a lot closer in some significant areas, and also Seventh-day Adventists seem to me to be more of a diverse group, where there's layers of different issues. You might be at a particular Seventh-day Adventist school that has much less issues than another one, I'm just being super open with you guys. Forgive me for offering summary conclusions without walking you on how I get there. This is just the Q&A, so I have to be very brief. Um, so yeah, I would probably pick the Seventh-day Adventist school myself. The um, Taking your kids out of public school, I understand that. My goodness, the stuff that's going on right now is really crazy. Yeah, so um, we, we pray, Lord, give Carrie wisdom, give her wisdom, give her and her family wisdom on what to do for their kids. In Jesus' name. All right, number 18, Raising Arrows has a question. How do I respond to my 17-year-old daughter who is persistent in being with her boyfriend who's an unbeliever and has fallen into sexual immorality? Um, this is a really, really tough one for me. Um, your family dynamic, okay, th there's the black and white of it, right? What do you do with, with a Christian who's living in ongoing sexual sin? You bring very, very serious rebuke. Um, I would even consider, you know, going to, if they won't listen to you, I would even consider involving the local church. I'm hoping you're involved in a local church and saying, we need to involve the local, the local church here too as well. And, and, and again, read Matthew 18 for a procedure on how this can take place. Um, so the... 
you know, that's the generic answer, except that family adds another layer to this. See, if your relationship was purely church-based, then, then the answer is actually a bit more simple. But you have another layer. This is your daughter. This is your family. And even if there was, say, church discipline involved, they don't stop being your daughter. You don't cut them out of the family. You don't shun them. And so you want to res you want to keep that relationship as a mother to your daughter and make sure that you're affirming your love for her or your your maybe you're uh maybe you're a a father either way. You want to affirm that you you love them, that you you care for them deeply. Now at 17 years old, it may be that your daughter's like some 17-year-olds who are going to say, "Well, if you don't approve of what I'm doing, you don't really love me, do you?" And so you may not be able to convince her of this truth. You just want to make sure you have the foundation that's there and you try to communicate it. You can't control what she thinks. Um, but I, but I would bring very, I would consider bringing very real and, and, and quick and very strong, but not angry, not angry, just strong, stern, sincere rebuke to her for the things that she's doing right now that are absolutely sinful. She thinks that she probably thinks that she just knows better. Um, you know, she knows what she wants and wants what she wants and doesn't care or whatever, or maybe this is, but it's love. This is love. Like I, I feel it. I feel it, you know? <laughs> When you've lived long enough, you know that that's not, um, I just, but I love that, 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 that this doesn't mean as much as what people think it means. Um, love is more than that. It's wonderful, butterflies and all that other stuff. It's just not very, very reliable because our hearts are so wacky and weird and they go and they go wild directions so quickly. We just can't use them as a guide. They can be a blessing, but they can be a curse. So man, oh, I, 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 I'm not sure what else advice to give as a, as a, as a parent to your 17 year old daughter. Make sure that that, that they that she knows that you love her, that she senses and feels that you love her, that she knows that you're not just angry at her, but that you do, you're gonna, you know, you deal with sin and call out sin as it is. Um, oh, I just, I pray that God gives you wisdom on this. I, I don't feel like I should say more because I feel and fear that my advice would not be fit for your particular situation. So I would say seek counsel elsewhere uh, beyond me. I'm so sorry. I can't be of more help. Amanda has a question. Hi, Mike. We moved and are visiting a new church. The pastor is teaching on marriage. He used 2 Corinthians 11.2 to say that fathers can veto who their daughters marry. Is this a biblical view? That's a very interesting thing. Let's go look at first, 2 Corinthians 11.2. Uh, oh, man pastor this would be a, a good reason to really wonder about whether you'll attend this church or not it says here for i feel a divine jealousy for you since i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to christ questions about context who's talking to who okay paul is he a father not a not a physical father no Who's he talking to? Is he talking to a daughter? No, he's talking to the entire church in Corinth. And who's the husband that he betrothed them to? Well, that would be God. That would be Jesus, ultimately, right? Christ, Jesus is the, the groom and the church is the bride. And so Paul's saying, I betrothed you to them. Now, let's just take Paul's context before we apply it to the further context of... Um, a father and his daughter, and whether he could veto who she marries. Did Paul have veto powers with the Corinthian church? 
The answer here is actually no. When Paul went and presented the gospel to them, he did not say, you are married to the world and you will now be married to Christ and I as your father am vetoing your marriage choice, your choice of who you marry. This is not what's happening. Paul brings the gospel. The Corinthians, they're the ones who make the decision to join themselves to Christ. Paul, being the one who brings them the gospel, he's betrothed them to Christ in a sense of being a spiritual father to them, yes. But not with a veto power. Paul had no ability to just go to people and be like, you're now a Christian. You're now a Christian. You're now a Christian. I'm betrothing you to Christ. I veto. That's not the context of Paul. Now, if you want to apply this to marriage and, and, and fathers and daughters, then it gets even harder because not only is it not there originally, this veto power, it's not there contextually. It's not about a father and a daughter. It's not about that at all. Um, so in their culture, it may be that a father could choose who his daughter would marry, but I don't see that that's affirmed in the Bible as the rule. Right? So it's just not there. Um, this is why I'd be concerned about the church that you've just decided to attend. And it doesn't mean you would absolutely cast them out because what happens when you're looking for churches, when you live in a new area, is you try a bunch of churches and you you have to pick from your options. Okay, you don't, you can't just go, here's my list of perfect church and then you get that church. You have to pick from the options that are available to you. But I will say this, that this would be a red flag to me if I was the one visiting a church and the pastor so misused the scripture here and did it in a way that enforces this sort of church-wide, like, uh, father's authority over his daughter. She could be 27 years old getting married, and he's like, <clears throat> veto. You know, like, it, this is... I have a serious concern that this is a symptom, that there are other issues going on in that fellowship, and um, I, would, I would consider at least a red flag to be watching out for other problems. So I'm sorry, Amanda. Thank you for asking, giving us a chance to look at this. It doesn't mean that in the context. And if you try to apply it to, to um, father-daughter relations, it doesn't apply because it, it doesn't work. This, these don't merge into father-daughter relations. And even if it did, it wouldn't give a veto power because Paul doesn't have a veto power in this context. All right, question 20, last question for today. This is from Jay Towles, who says, Hey, Pastor Mike, maybe a bit of a silly question. But do you think Jesus was an average naughty child or was he perfect as a child too? Hmm. Hmm. Well, whenever we're asking questions about what we don't know about Jesus, we have to, to be safe, to be biblical, we have to start with what we do know about Jesus. If we can work from the known towards the unknown, it will at least give us, if not an answer, it'll give us a range of options. Right? A range of options. Um, so when we ask the question of what kind of child was Jesus, we can, we can go to what we know about Jesus and his nature and his character. Jesus, it says in Scripture, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews. He was tempted in all ways as we are, so he would have, as a child, dealt with all the same temptations that children deal with, of selfishness and cruelty and bullying and wanting to just set pets on fire or, or whatever, well, maybe not pets, but animals on fire, <laughs> um, th that sort of thing, you know, like I have a rock, there's a, there's a living creature. I think I'll throw it at it. I mean, this is like, this is especially for guys, right? This is, this is, we're like wired to be jerks sometimes <laughs> and girls, you are too, in just different ways. <laughs> you throw other kinds of rocks. Um, and Jesus therefore would have been tempted in all those ways, yet he was without sin. So you never in his childhood would have seen Jesus 
doing something like throwing a tantrum that would be an act of sinful, sinful behavior. It doesn't mean he never cried as a child cries when they're hungry or cries when they're tired or something like that, but not sin, being cruel, being, you know, sinful in some way. So yeah, um, that, that's, I think, the boundaries we have. So to answer your question, was Jesus an average naughty child? I think he was not an average naughty child. He was probably a very good child, right? But doesn't doesn't mean he didn't struggle with the same temptations every other child would struggle with. But here's the thing. When you think about Jesus growing up, you would think that his family would be like, he's so amazing. He's so amazing. But like Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor except in his own home, in his own, in his own land, with his own relative relatives. When you have amazing, amazing people and you grow up with them, you generally don't think they're amazing because you're just used to them. And this is kind of, I think, the pers perspective that others would have. His younger siblings might have looked at him as a bit annoying because he's never getting in trouble. And he's like the standard that we never me measure up to. The people around him might have looked at him like a kind of a goody two-shoes. He's not doesn't break any rules and stuff like that. Like he's kind of like, you know, <laughs> to use a modern term, he's kind of legalistic. You know, he's just always doing the right thing. He's so worried about doing the right thing. And this kind of attitude, I think, would have already been there so that people can sort of numb themselves to the greatness that's in front of them in the case of Jesus in particular that I think would have likely happened. Why am I saying that in answer to your question, Jay Towels? I don't know. I was just thinking about it as I was talking. <laughs> so um, thank you guys. I'm going to close this in prayer because that's going to be the new routine, closing in prayer. And then I want to tell you about a video I just put out today that I'll hope you have a chance to check out. So uh, let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for the opportunity to dig in your word to take real life issues and questions and, and throw scripture at them to see if we can get clarity. We pray for the questions that were not answered that well for those people who need more clarity and more answers and more instruction that they would find it, that you'd bring people into their lives to give them counsel and advice and you'd guide them in their scripture reading right to places in, in the word of God that would give them clarity on how to deal with the issues they're going through, Lord. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that your spirit is leading us to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, the video I want to tell you guys about is this video I've got up on my channel now about a pastor who says God is pro-choice. Just a little clip where he says God is pro-choice and he gives a specific Bible verse to, to say it from Deuteronomy to say that God says choose life, which means that God would never legislate, legislate against being pro-choice because God, while he's pro-life in one sense, he's also, as far as the law is concerned, entirely pro-choice. So that's a video that just went up. It's on my channel. I've linked it down below in the video description. Something for you to check out if you like. It's a bit of a shorter video. It's like 16 minutes, I think. Um, so um, that's about it. I'll see you guys on, fr oh, it is Friday. I won't see you on Monday. It's July 4th. I will see you when I see you. Maybe next Friday. We'll see. Take care.